Section 5 of Self-Help This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Wilkie Mills, Buffalo, New York. Self-Help with Illustrations of Conduct and Perseverance by Samuel Smiles. Chapter 2. Leaders of Industry inventors and producers part two sir robert peel the first baronet and the second manufacturer of the name inherited all his father's enterprise ability and industry his position at starting in life was little above that of an ordinary working man for his father though laying the foundations of future prosperity was still struggling with the difficulties arising from insufficient capital. When Robert was only twenty years of age, he determined to begin the business of cotton printing, which he had by this time learnt from his father on his own account. His uncle, James Haworth, and William Yates of Blackburn, joined him in his enterprise. The whole capital which they could raise amongst them amounting to only five hundred pounds the principal part of which was supplied by William Yates. The father of the latter was a householder in Blackburn, where he was well known and much respected, and having saved money by his business, he was willing to advance sufficient to give his son a start in the lucrative trade of cotton printing, then in its infancy. Robert Peel, though comparatively a mere youth, supplied the practical knowledge of the business, but it was said of him, and proved true, that he carried an old head on young shoulders. A ruined corn mill, with its adjoining fields, was purchased for a comparatively small sum, near the then insignificant town of Bury, where the works long after continued to be known as The Ground. And a few wooden sheds having been run up, the firm commenced their cotton-printing business in a very humble way in the year 1770, adding to it that of cotton-spinning a few years later. The frugal style in which the partners lived may be inferred from the following incident in their early career. William Yates, being a married man with a family, commenced housekeeping on a small scale, and, to oblige Peel, who was single, he agreed to take him as a lodger. The sum which the latter first paid for board and lodging was only eight shillings a week, but Yates, considering this too little, insisted on the weekly payment being increased a shilling, to which Peel at first demurred. And a difference between the partners took place which was eventually compromised by the lodger paying an advance of sixpence a week. William Yates's eldest child was a girl named Ellen, and she very soon became an especial favorite with the young lodger. On returning from his hard day's work at the ground, he would take the little girl upon his knee and say to her, Nelly, thou bonny little dear, wilt be my wife? to which the child would readily answer, Yes, as any child would do. Then I'll wait for thee, Nelly. I'll wed thee and none else. And Robert Peel did wait. As the girl grew in beauty towards womanhood, his determination to wait for her was strengthened, 
and after a lapse of ten years years of close application to business and rapidly increasing prosperity robert peel married ellen yates when she had completed her seventeenth year and the pretty child whom her mother's lodger and father's partner had nursed upon his knee became mrs peel and eventually lady peel the mother of the future prime minister of england lady peel was a noble and beautiful woman fitted to grace any station in life she possessed rare powers of mind and was on every emergency the highest-souled and faithful counsellor of her husband for many years after their marriage she acted as his amanuensis conducting the principal part of his business correspondence for mr peel himself was an indifferent and almost unintelligible writer she died in eighteen o three only three years after the baronetcy had been conferred upon her husband it is said that london fashionable life so unlike what she had been accustomed to at home proved injurious to her health and old mr yates afterwards used to say if robert hadn't made our nelly a lady she might have been living yet the career of yates peel and company was throughout one of great and uninterrupted prosperity sir robert peel himself was the soul of the firm to great energy and application uniting much practical sagacity and first-rate mercantile abilities qualities in which many of the early cotton spinners were exceedingly deficient he was a man of iron mind and frame and toiled unceasingly in short he was to cotton printing what arkwright was to cotton spinning and his success was equally great the excellence of the articles produced by the firm secured the command of the market and the character of the firm stood pre-eminent in lancashire besides greatly benefiting bury the partnership planted similar extensive works in the neighborhood on the irwell and the roch and it was cited to their honor that while they sought to raise to the highest perfection the quality of their manufacturers they also endeavored in all ways to promote the well-being and comfort of the workpeople for whom they contrived to provide remunerative employment even in the least prosperous times sir robert peel readily appreciated the value of all new processes and inventions in illustration of which we may allude to his adoption of the process for producing what is called resist work in calico printing this is accomplished by the use of a paste or resist on such parts of the cloth as were intended to remain white the person who discovered the paste was a traveller for a london house who sold it to mr peel for an inconsiderable sum it required the experience of a year or two to perfect the system and make it practically useful but the beauty of its effect and the extreme precision of outline in the pattern produced at once placed the bury establishment at the head of all the factories for calico printing in the country other firms conducted with like spirit were established by members of the same family at burnley foxhill bank and altham in lancashire sally abbey in yorkshire and afterwards at burton-on-trent in staffordshire these various establishments 
whilst they brought wealth to their proprietors, setting an example to the whole cotton trade, and training up many of the most successful printers and manufacturers in Lancashire. Among other distinguished founders of industry, the Reverend William Lee, inventor of the stocking frame, and John Heathcote, inventor of the bobbin net machine, are worthy of notice as men of great mechanical skill and perseverance, through whose labors a vast amount of remunerative employment has been provided for the laboring population of Nottingham and the adjacent districts. The accounts which have been preserved of the circumstances connected with the invention of the stocking frame are very confused, and in many respects contradictory, though there is no doubt as to the name of the inventor. This was William Lee, born at Woodborough, a village some seven miles from Nottingham, about the year 1563. According to some accounts, he was the heir to a small freehold, while according to others he was a poor scholar, and had to struggle with poverty from his earliest years. He entered as a sizer at Christ College, Cambridge, in May 1579, and subsequently removed to St. John's, taking his degree of B.A. in 1582-83. It is believed that he commenced M.A. in 1586, but on this point there appears to be some confusion in the records of the university. The statement, usually made that he was expelled for marrying contrary to the statutes, is incorrect, as he was never a fellow of the university and therefore could not be prejudiced by taking such a step. At the time when Lee invented the stocking frame, he was officiating as curate of Calverton, near Nottingham, and it is alleged by some writers that the invention had its origin in disappointed affection. The curate is said to have fallen deeply in love with a young lady of the village who failed to reciprocate his affections, and when he visited her, she was accustomed to pay much more attention to the process of knitting stockings and instructing her pupils in the art than to the addresses of her admirer. This slight is said to have created in his mind such an aversion to knitting by hand that he formed the determination to invent a machine that should supersede it and render it as a gainless employment. For three years he devoted himself to the prosecution of the invention, sacrificing everything to his new idea. At the prospect of success opened before him, he abandoned his curacy and devoted himself to the art of stocking-making by machinery. This is the version of the story given by Henson, on the authority of an old stocking-maker, who died in Collins Hospital, Nottingham, aged ninety-two, and was apprenticed in the town during the reign of Queen Anne. It is also given by Deering and de Blackner, as the traditional account in the neighborhood, and it is in some measure borne out by the arms of the London Company of Framework Knitters, which consists of a stocking-frame without the woodwork, with a clergyman on one side, and a woman, on the other as supporters. Whatever may have been the actual facts as to the origin of the invention of the stocking loom, there can be no doubt as to the extraordinary mechanical genius displayed by its inventor. That a clergyman, living in a remote village whose life had for the most part been spent with books, should contrive a machine of such delicate and complicated movements 
and at once advanced the art of knitting from the tedious process of linking threads in a chain of loops by three skewers in the fingers of a woman to the beautiful and rapid process of weaving by the stocking frame was indeed an astonishing achievement which may be pronounced almost unequalled in the history of mechanical invention lee's merit was all the greater as the handicraft arts were then in their infancy and little attention had as yet been given to the contrivance of machinery for the purpose of manufacture he was under the necessity of extemporizing the parts of his machine as best he could and adopting various expedients to overcome difficulties as they arose his tools were imperfect and his materials imperfect and he had no skilled workmen to assist him according to tradition the first frame he made was a twelve-gauge without lead sinkers and it was almost wholly of wood the needles being also stuck in bits of wood one of lee's principal difficulties consisted in the formation of the stitch for want of needle eyes but this he eventually overcame by forming eyes to the needles with a three-square file at length one difficulty after another was successfully overcome and after three years labor the machine was sufficiently complete to be fit for use the quantum curate full of enthusiasm for his art now began stocking weaving in the village of calverton and he continued to work there for several years instructing his brother james and several of his relations in the practice of the art having brought his frame to a considerable degree of perfection and being desirous of securing the patronage of queen elizabeth whose partiality for knitted silk stockings was well known lee proceeded to london to exhibit the loom before her majesty he first showed it to several members of the court among others to sir william afterwards lord hunson whom he taught to work it with success and lee was through their instrumentality at length admitted to an interview with the queen and worked the machine in her presence elizabeth however did not give him the encouragement that he had expected and she is said to have opposed the invention on the ground that it was calculated to deprive a large member of poor people of their employment of hand knitting lee was no more successful in finding other patrons and considering himself and his invention treated with contempt he embraced the offer made to him by sully the sagacious minister of henry the fourth to proceed to rouen and instruct the operatives of that town then one of the most important manufacturing centres of france in the construction and use of the stocking frame lee accordingly transferred himself and his machines to france in sixteen o five taking with him his brother and seven workmen he met with a cordial reception at rouen and was proceeding with the manufacture of stockings on a large scale having nine of his frames in full work when unhappily ill fortune again overtook him henry the fourth his protector on whom he had relied for the rewards honors and promised grant of privileges which had induced lee to settle in france was murdered by the fanatic ravaillac and the encouragement and protection which had heretofore been extended to him were at once withdrawn to press his claims at court 
Lee proceeded to Paris, but being a Protestant as well as a foreigner, his representations were treated with neglect, and worn out with vexation and grief, this distinguished inventor shortly after died at Paris, in a state of extreme poverty and distress. Lee's brother, with seven of the workmen, succeeded in escaping from France with their frames, leaving two behind. On James Lee's return to Nottinghamshire, he was joined by one Ashton, a miller of Thoroton, who had been instructed in the art of framework knitting by the inventor himself before he left England. These two, with the workmen and their frames, began the stocking manufacture at Thoroton, and carried it on with considerable success. The place was favorably situated for the purpose, as the sheep pastured in the neighboring district of Sherwood yielded a kind of wool of the longest staple. Ashton is said to have introduced the method of making the frames with lead sinkers, which was a great improvement. The number of looms employed in different parts of England gradually increased, and the machine manufacture of stockings eventually became an important branch of the national industry. One of the most important modifications in the stocking frame was that which enabled it to be applied to the manufacture of lace on a large scale. In 1777, two workmen, Frost and Holmes, were both engaged in making point net by means of the modifications they had introduced in the stocking frame, and in the course of about thirty years, so rapid was the growth of this branch of production that fifteen hundred point net frames were at work giving employment to upwards of fifteen thousand people. Owing, however, to the war, to change of fashion, and to other circumstances, the Nottingham lace manufacture rapidly fell off, and it continued in a decaying state until the invention of the bobbin net machine by John Heathcote, late M.P. for Tiverton, which had the effect of at once re-establishing the manufacture on solid foundations. John Heathcote was the youngest son of a respectable small farmer at Duffield, Derbyshire, where he was born in 1783. When at school he made steady and rapid progress, but was early removed from it to be apprenticed to a framesmith near Loughborough. The boy soon learnt to handle tools with dexterity, and he acquired a minute knowledge of the parts of which the stocking frame was composed as well as of the more intricate warp machine. At his leisure he studied how to introduce improvements in them, and his friend, Mr. Baisley, M.P., states that as early as the age of sixteen he conceived the idea of inventing a machine by which lace might be made similar to Buckingham or French lace, then all made by hand. The first practical improvement he succeeded in introducing was in the warp frame, when, by means of an ingenious apparatus, he succeeded in producing knits of lacy appearance, and it was this success which determined him to pursue the study of mechanical lace-making. The stocking frame had already, in a modified form, been applied to the manufacture of point-net lace, in which the mesh was looped as in a stocking, but the work was slight and frail, and therefore unsatisfactory. Many ingenious Nottingham mechanics had, during a long succession of years, 
been laboring at the problem of inventing a machine by which the mesh of threads should be twisted round each other on the formation of the net some of these men died in poverty some were driven insane and all alike failed in the object of their search the old warp machine held its ground when a little over twenty-one years of age heathcote went to nottingham where he readily found employment for which he soon received the highest remuneration as a setter-up of hosiery and warp-frames and was much respected for his talent for invention general intelligence and the sound and sober principles that governed his conduct he also continued to pursue the subject on which his mind had before been occupied and labored to compass the contrivance of a twist-traverse net machine he first studied the art of making the buckingham or pillow lace by hand with the object of effecting the same motions by mechanical means it was a long and laborious task requiring the exercise of great perseverance and ingenuity his master elliot described him at that time as inventive patient self-denying and taciturn undaunted by failures and mistakes full of resources and expedients and entertaining the most perfect confidence that his application of mechanical principles would eventually be crowned with success it is difficult to describe in words an invention so complicated as the bobbin net machine it was indeed a mechanical pillow for making lace imitating in an ingenious manner the motions of the lace-maker's fingers in intersecting or tying the meshes of the lace upon her pillow on analyzing the component parts of a piece of handmade lace heathcote was enabled to classify the threads into longitudinal and diagonal he began his experiments by fixing common pack threads lengthwise on a sort of frame for the warp and then passing the waft threads between them by common pliers delivering them to other pliers on the opposite side then after giving them a sideways motion and twist the threads were repassed back between the next adjoining cords the meshes being thus tied in the same way as upon pillows by hand he had then to contrive a mechanism that should accomplish all these nice and delicate movements and to do this cost him no small amount of mental toil long after he said the single difficulty of getting the diagonal threads to twist in the allotted space was so great that if it had now to be done i should probably not attempt its accomplishment his next step was to provide thin metallic discs to be used as bobbins for conducting the threads backwards and forwards through the warp these discs being arranged in carrier frames placed on each side of the warp were moved by suitable machinery so as to conduct the threads from side to side in forming the lace he eventually succeeded in working out his principle with extraordinary skill and success and at the age of twenty-four he was enabled to secure his invention by a patent during this time his wife was kept in almost as great anxiety as himself for she well knew of his trials and difficulties while he was striving to perfect his invention many years after they had been successfully overcome the conversation which took place one eventful evening was vividly remembered well said the anxious wife 
Will it work? No, was the sad answer. I have had to take it all to pieces again. Though he could still speak hopefully and cheerfully, his poor wife could restrain her feelings no longer, but sat down and cried bitterly. She had, however, only a few more weeks to wait, for success long labored for and richly deserved came at last, and a proud and happy man was John Heathcote when he brought home the first narrow strip of bobbin net made by his machine and placed it in the hands of his wife. As in the case of nearly all inventions which have proved productive, Heathcote's rights as a patentee were disputed, and his claims as an inventor called in question. On the supposed invalidity of the patent, the lace-makers boldly adopted the bobbinet machine and set the inventor at defiance. But other patents were taken out for alleged improvements and adaptations, and it was only when these new patentees fell out and went to the law with each other that Heathcote's rights became established. One lace manufacturer, having brought an action against another for an alleged infringement of his patent, the jury brought in a verdict for the defendant, in which the judge concurred, on the ground that both the machines in question were infringements on Heathcote's patent. It was on the occasion of this trial, Beauville versus Moore, that Sir John Copley, afterwards Lord Lyndhurst, who was retained for the defense in the interest of Mr. Heathcote, learnt to work the bobbinet machine in order that he might master the details of the invention. On reading over his brief, he confessed that he did not quite understand the merits of the case, but as it seemed to him to be one of great importance, he offered to go down into the country forthwith and study the machine until he understood it. And then, said he, I will defend you to the best of my ability." he accordingly put himself into the knight's mail and went down to Nottingham to get up his case as perhaps counsel never got it up before. Next morning, the learned sergeant placed himself in the lace-room, and he did not leave it until he could deftly make a piece of bobbinet with his own hands and thoroughly understood the principle as well as the details of the machine. When the case came on for trial, the learned sergeant was enabled to work the model on the table with such case and skill, and to explain the precise nature of the invention with such felicitous clearness, as to astonish alike judge, jury, and spectators, and the thorough conscientiousness and mastery with which he handled the case had no doubt its influence upon the decision of the court. After the trial was over, Mr. Heathcote, on inquiry, found about six hundred machines at work after his patent, and he proceeded to levy royalty upon the owners of them, which amounted to a large sum. But the profits realized by the manufacturers of lace were very great, and the use of the machines rapidly extended, while the price of the article was reduced from five pounds the square yard to about five pence in the course of twenty-five years. During the same period, the average annual returns of the lace trade have been at least four millions sterling, and it gives remunerative employment to about 150,000 workpeople. To return to the personal history of Mr. Heathcote, 
In 1809, we find him established as a lace manufacturer at Loughborough in Leicestershire. There he carried on a prosperous business for several years, giving employment to a large number of operatives, at wages varying from five pounds to ten pounds a week. Notwithstanding the great increase in the number of hands employed in lace-making through the introduction of the new machines, it began to be whispered about among the workpeople that they were superseding labor, and an extensive conspiracy was formed for the purpose of destroying them wherever found. As early as the year 1811, disputes arose between the masters and men engaged in the stocking and lace trades in the southwestern parts of Nottinghamshire and the adjacent parts of Derbyshire and Leicestershire, the result of which was the assembly of a mob at Sutton in Ashfield, who proceeded in open day to break the stocking and lace frames of the manufacturers. Some of the ringleaders having been seized and punished, the disaffected learnt caution. But the destruction of the machines was nevertheless carried on secretly, wherever a safe opportunity presented itself. As the machines were of so delicate a construction that a single blow of a hammer rendered them useless, and as the manufacture was carried on for the most part in detached buildings, often in private dwellings remote from towns, the opportunities of destroying them were unusually easy. In the neighborhood of Nottingham, which was the focus of turbulence, the machine-breakers organized themselves in regular bodies, and held nocturnal meetings at which their plans were arranged. Probably, with the view of inspiring confidence, they gave out that they were under the command of a leader named Ned Ludd, or General Ludd, and hence their designation of Luddites. Under this organization, machine-breaking was carried on with great vigor during the winter of 1811, occasioning great distress and throwing large numbers of workpeople out of employment. Meanwhile, the owners of the frames proceeded to remove them from the villages and lone dwellings in the country, and brought them into warehouses in the towns for their better protection. End of Section 5 Recording by Wilkie Mills, Buffalo, New York